It's summer. I know it's summer until I start teaching, and then all of a sudden, it's business. So, yes, you're right. This summer, we're doing a series on uh, called A Glossary of Grace, where we're taking a, a, a $5 theological word, an important theological word, and just sort of discussing what it means. Um, and uh, these aren't like extra credit words or superfluous, super spiritual words. Uh, really, these are terms and uh, the ideas behind them, the realities behind them that are really central to what Christianity is all about. Um, And they all fit under the umbrella of grace, that is, God's undeserved love and gift toward us. So last week we talked about grace. And uh, and this week we talked about atonement. One thing I said last week was I sat around and consulted with staff and we figured out which words to choose, but I forgot to mention that the ultimate final list I went with was actually a list that James Miller devised, um, former RUF student and uh, Callie's um, husband. I was going to use a derogatory term to describe that, but but uh, I decided not to. I, lo- I love James, so um, yeah, I know he's your husband. I was going to call him like your lesser half, but it's just not. It's not good. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think it's true either, so I didn't say it. Anyway. Um, so we're discussing atonement today, and uh, in your Bibles uh, today, uh, when we look at certain texts, uh, the word atonement probably won't show up, actually. It's a very important concept, but you don't see the word very often. It is translated atonement in some places, but in other translations it's called propitiation, an even bigger, longer word, um, but it has the same general idea. So uh, in order to sort of introduce the topic, though, I want you to imagine uh, that not only are you not a Christian, you've never been to church before in your life. Imagine you've never ever been to a church in your life and you go because a friend's invited you. You don't know what to expect. And uh, after some fancy smiling guy uh, welcomes everyone, you stand up and sing, which no one does. We don't sing together as a culture except for um, God Bless America and the seventh inning of a baseball game or Take Me Out to the Ball Game or Star Spangled Manor. We don't really sing as a culture. So singing is weird anyway, uh, unless you're drunk and doing karaoke or happy birthday. Um, but for the most part, we don't do a lot of singing. So it's weird. But then the words are really strange. Uh, the first song is like this. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And you sit down and think, we're singing about blood. (laughs) And then uh, the pastor stands up and says some other things, and people talk, and there's a greeting time, and everyone's really friendly, and they seem normal, and you stand up and you sing again. And the second song goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. So the image here is literally a flood of blood that you are plunged into and raised back up. And you sit down, again, you don't know anything about church at all, and you're thinking... I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're not actually talking about a fountain filled with blood. But maybe they are. And maybe that's what baptism is? And I don't, you don't know. It's really weird, right? And then the pastor stands up and says a message, and some things are a little weird, and you don't understand them. Some things are maybe a little offensive, but you're not sure. You're trying to be nice and give them the benefit of the doubt. But for the most part, it's a good message. And then at the end, you stand up and you sing, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? <laughs> Died he for me who caused his pain for me to him who death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? 
And then you walk out with your friend, and your friend asks you afterwards, well, what did you think? And you reply, because you're being honest, dude, what's up with all the blood? <laughs> like, that's a bit far-fetched that all those songs would be sung on the same day. It's not out of the realm of possibility. And these are like really old and really well-cherished songs in the history of the church. Uh, let's do it a different way. Imagine you're a Christian, you're a young adult, and you've decided, because you've heard you should, you've decided you're going to spend the year reading through the Bible. Okay? So you start in Genesis and you read along, and it's a little interesting and a little weird, but there's some exciting stories and some things that are a little bit shocking, and uh, people getting drunk and passing out, and uh, temptation and distress and imprisonment, and uh, it's more exciting than you thought. And then you get to Exodus, and there's slavery and deliverance and a conflict. It's pretty dramatic. And then there's redemption and deliverance, and it's pretty cool. And uh, you finish up Exodus, and at this point, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're 90 chapters in. It's been, it's been like a long race, and the first six miles are all downhill. You feel pretty good. And you hit Leviticus. <laughs> and you, yeah, you slow to a crawl. You start reading, and you're like, I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. It seems like they're saying the same thing over and over. What's going on? And uh, you ask yourself, what's, what's with all the blood? What's with all the sacrifices? That's what Leviticus is about. It's a description of all the sacrifices and, and the temple system. So, uh, really, what I'm going to say when we talk about atonement is uh, we're talking about sacrifice. We're talking about, in some ways, what is a central aspect of Christianity, that at the heart of it, there's a, a sacrifice. And, uh, you know, and, and, and blood, therefore, as well. So, I want to give you, right off the bat, a very, very simple description of uh, atonement and then I'll tell a brief story and then I'll give a longer description but I want you to get it like a couple different ways so it sticks. So I want to give you the simplest one first. Uh, John three sixteen, God so loved the world he gave his only son his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So uh, in other words out of love for God so loved the world out of love God gave that's grace. Grace is God giving something. We don't deserve it. He gives it of His own volition, of His own will. It's an act of love from the Father that He gives the Son, which is His own Son. If you're reading through John, you don't necessarily know this until you get to that, but it's an eternal Son, a divine Son. God gives a Son to the world. And what's at stake, I'm just telling you all that's clear in John 3.16, is life or death. That you might not perish, but have you everlasting life. Something about the gift of the Son makes a difference between life and death. Now, we don't exactly know in John 3.16 what kind of giving God is doing, but this is a beginning of a description of, uh, of what God is doing in the idea of atonement, that God the Father is offering His Son to the world as a gift that brings life. So, uh, that's a good introduction. It leaves a lot of things unsaid, uh, like, how did God give? Um, and why his son? Why was it necessary? Why a bloody sacrifice? Why, is that really necessary? Uh, and if it is necessary, why does it work? So imagine, let's go back to that scenario where you've decided, perhaps some of you were doing it this summer, to read through the Bible. And uh, you've read the Genesis and you're hitting Exodus. And you're reading through Exodus and so far you've realized, like, okay, The first part's about deliverance. God brings his people out of slavery. He brings them to himself, and he says, you're my people. 
And they enter into an agreement. We'll be your people. We'll love you and follow you. You'll be our God. Okay? But then you keep reading what happens in the rest of Exodus, and this is true in the rest of like Numbers and Deuteronomy, as uh, the people continually screw up. If you're reading through Exodus and Numbers, they're called to live in a close relationship with a holy God. And yet, they're constantly grumbling, complaining, and messing up. And uh, God is forgiving, and the process repeats itself. And if you're reading through Exodus and Numbers, you have to ask yourself this question. Is this relationship really going to work? Seriously. like There are times where God's like, I'm done with these people. And Moses has to be a mediator and says, you can't give up on them. Uh, you know, Moses in the back of his mind is like, I don't know if this is going to work or not. Uh, is this relationship going to work? And uh, Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, I forgot to offer Bibles. Anybody need a Bible? Pass them around. Uh, you can turn to Leviticus if you want to. The place you really need to turn to later is Hebrews 9. You don't have to turn to Leviticus if you don't want to. Um, but Leviticus 11, uh, verse 45, we're, we're pretty deep into the introduction to the whole sacrificial system. We sort of get the heart or description of the problem. God sums it up this way in Leviticus. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you out of love. I delivered you and brought you to myself to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It's Leviticus eleven forty-five. I'll read it again. This is the nature of the relationship and their responsibility. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Okay, that's pretty clear. I brought you to myself. I redeemed you. Therefore, be like me. It's also a huge problem because they can't. They're not. And if you read through the Old Testament, they're really bad at this. Uh, And this is actually the major conflict in the Bible. It's not uh, Pharaoh and God, and it's not Assyria and God, and it's not Babylon and Israel, and it's not Rome and the New Testament, and it's not American evangelicals and the broader culture. The major conflict in the Bible and in history is, how will God dwell with his people when he's a holy, perfect God who must be just, and we by nature are selfish and sinful and self-centered. That is the heart. That is the problem. That is the crux of, uh, of the whole issue. And uh, yeah, and actually Leviticus gives us the answer. Leviticus gives the answer. The answer is atonement, sacrifice. Weird, bloody Strange Leviticus actually tells us that the way God will live with his people and they will live with him is by means of sacrifice, uh, by atonement. So chapter 16, we're not going to read this, but chapter 16 in Leviticus, in my mind, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's where God describes to his people, this is what's going to be necessary for us to live together. For me, being holy and just, to live with you who are not holy and just, we're going to need a way to forgive you. And I'm going to provide a sacrifice. And you're going to have to listen to me and provide that sacrifice. But when it's offered, it will bear your sins. So Leviticus 16, which tells us about atonement, sets for us a picture of what's to come. Okay? And so the picture is one of substitution. Um, you know, you can die for yourself if you want to. You deserve it. Uh, or you can provide a substitute. Who will take your place? So atonement is a substitutionary sacrifice. 
you can either receive the punishment yourself that you deserve, or you can take a substitute, an animal, or something else that will take its place. Now, whenever we talk about, um, and by we I mean like me as a pastor, uh, talk about substitutionary atonement or sacrifice or bloody sacrifice of the Old Testament, invariably there are objections and questions, and I get it. Um, Isn't this weird? Isn't this bloody? Isn't this antiquated? Isn't this superstitious? Isn't this barbarian? And yet, I think we would admit that sin calls for justice. I think sin calls for justice. When we see injustice in places where we expect justice, there's outrage. So right now, the media and uh, and other places are abuzz with outrage uh, over this Stanford student who got a six-month sentence for raping someone. You're aware of this? Yeah. Uh, Why? Because they expect justice, and they feel like justice wasn't delivered. Uh, Another example of this, it's really interesting. Not only do we expect justice uh, outside of us, but sometimes deep down, we expect justice ourselves. I don't mean like when someone wrongs us. I mean sometimes we beat ourselves up for things we've done. There's a great movie came out about, oh, too long ago, called uh, 13 Conversations About One Thing. And in the movie, a character played by Matthew McConaughey, who's a really slick lawyer or business guy, uh, he wasn't drunk, but he was distracted. He had been drinking, but he wasn't drunk. Uh, He's distracted, and he hits someone. And uh, he thinks they're dead. And he drives away. And uh, it turns out she's not dead, but she does have amnesia. It takes a long time for her to recover. Uh, In the accident, uh, McConaughey uh, gets cut over his brow when his head hits the steering wheel. And some six months later, uh, a co-worker's like, you still have that cut? He's like, yeah, it just won't heal. And the next scene is him in his bathroom cutting himself. (laughs) He's punishing himself because he can't get over what he's done. He can't forgive himself because he thinks he's killed someone. He thinks he's killed someone and he's run away from it and he can't get over it. He is, he's making himself pay. Now, that's a bit of a hard example, but I think if we dig down deep in our hearts, we'll see that when we do things we're not supposed to and we know it, we find ways to take it out on ourselves or on other people. Someone's got to pay. Um, so if that's true of us as a culture and as individuals, how much more is that true of a holy and just God? That sin cries out uh, for punishment and uh, that it must be paid for. And uh, that leads us to something that's very interesting. Some people will ask the question, why is atonement necessary? Why is a substitutionary sacrifice necessary? And the answer is, it's not. God's under no compulsion to offer a sacrifice. A holy God is under compulsion to punish sin. A holy and just God has to punish sin in order to be just and holy. But He doesn't have to forgive anyone. He doesn't have to provide a sacrifice at all. He chose to, out of love. Okay, But once a holy God decides that He's going to forgive then he has to do so in a way that doesn't jeopardize justice. Forgiving is not forgetting. Somebody has to pay. 
And so for justice and mercy to meet, there has to be a punishment received. And atonement is God providing a sacrifice that takes our place. Uh, And that is in the person of Jesus. So uh, this is all by way of introduction to introduce us to Hebrews 9. You're like, oh no, we'll be here forever. Uh, No, actually, uh, Hebrews 9, we're just going to clarify what I've said and and put a point and a dot on it to make it clear that what we're really talking about here is the person and work of Jesus. The rest of the Bible prepares us for a perfect priest who will come and offer a perfect sacrifice that will make us right with God. And Hebrews 9, on the backside of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, clarifies for us who Jesus is and what he's done. And uh, so what we have here, this is sort of the last point. I gave you a short definition, and I gave you the story of atonement. And here I'm going to just sort of explain. Atonement is the Son of God uh, being our substitute. And I'm going to read a couple of verses in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 6. And I'll just explain a little bit as I go, okay? So in verse 6, the author of the Hebrews writes, These preparations, he's talking about service in the temple, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, the first section of the temple, and they perform their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. So there was a generally holy section of the temple, and then there was a special section of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And he's saying the, the high priest only goes there Um, once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So uh, the picture, again, is described in Leviticus 16. The high priest is the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies. He has to go in ready to make atonement. He has to go in with a rope tied around his ankle, because if he's struck dead by the holiness of God, they may be able to pull him out without going in themselves. Not making any of this up. Um, And what the author of Hebrews is going to say here is really cool. Uh, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section still remains, which is symbolic for the present age. You're like, what? 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 Stick with me. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but do only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Okay, so what... What he's bringing to a point here is, so long as the system worked like this, so long as only one person had access to the holiness of the holies, where God dwells, it means we cannot, we don't, we don't have access to the Father like we should, like we're, we, like we want, and that these sacrifices, verse nine, can't perfect our conscience. Uh, in other words, we offer sacrifices, and at the same time, we wonder, like, is that enough? Have I done enough? Did that really work? Did God really forgive me? Because what's going to happen is, one, I know that's just a turtle dove. I'm not really sure a turtle dove is sufficient to really cover my sins. Um, And and secondly, I know I'm going to mess up again and have to bring another turtle dove in a couple days. I can't get in close to God and have the access I want, and I have to keep coming back all the time. And if that's the way it works, then you are not sure you're really forgiven and really loved. And that's what he's saying. Like that, It's not a sufficient system to really minister deeply to your heart, to let you know that God's forgiven you and wants you. So, uh, and then we have the comparison. This is what Hebrews does. It describes the way things were, and then describes how Jesus relates to them. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So he's, in other words, he's saying, we're not talking about the earthly tabernacle and tent, um, temple. We're talking about a spiritual reality here. Um, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So uh, what he's saying here is Jesus and his work was living as a high priest, the one that had access, full access to the Father and all his holiness, and that Jesus, like a high priest, came and offered a sacrifice, but a, a sacrifice unlike any other priest ever. Every other sacrifice that was offered was an animal. Jesus offered his life, the one perfect final sacrifice. Uh, as uh, the text describes it, this is the final entrance by means of his own blood. And uh, verse 13 makes an important point. If the blood of uh, Nat, of I said Nat, so it looked like Nat. <laughs> like, That's my blood, actually. If the, if, the, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And what he's saying here is, listen, the sacrificial system worked. Like, they were forgiven um, because their sacrifices pointed to the great sacrifice. And they knew they were waiting for a greater sacrifice. And it cleansed them. But how much more will the one final perfect sacrifice offered by the perfect high priest, Jesus, perfectly cleanse our hearts if we understand who he is and what he's done for us? Uh, That Jesus is the perfect sacrifice without blemish. And uh, we don't have time to go into this, but... You know, the question is, why did Jesus have to die? Is Well, no one else was good enough. There was no other sacrifice sufficient. We're talking about an eternal weight of sin. We think about all of God's people's sins. And uh, you need to have someone that's righteous to take their place, to bear their guilt. Um, and uh, we're really lacking in righteous people in general. We don't have any of them. And uh, so uh, we needed a perfect human to take our place, which is why God became flesh for us in order to uh, live a perfect life and to offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for us. And when we understand that, the phrase here, purify our conscience, is really important. It means we know, because of what Jesus has done, we can know that God has really, truly forgiven us and uh, that we have access to the Father. Uh, This is how you can know that you're forgiven. Uh, I'm going to read a few more verses and then we're done. Uh, The end of Hebrews, verses 22 and following. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I could explain all this, but it'll take forever. So if you have questions about this, you can ask me later. Um, But what he's saying is, you know, the... The, the real spiritual realities required a real spiritual solution, which was the life and death of Jesus. Uh, for Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself, this is important, this is why I'm reading this, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, uh, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. As it is, he being Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Okay, that's the point. The work of atonement is Jesus, the perfect high priest, offering one sacrifice, his life, 
for good, forever, case closed, end of deal. Nothing more is necessary. Nothing more is sufficient. There is nothing else that could ever be sufficient. So Jesus, once for all, life and death for us is all that's necessary and all that's really able to forgive us. And uh, Jesus has done his work in living his life and offering his life as a sacrifice for us. Um, you know, it's, it's up to us now to recognize that and say, I can live on my own merits and try to perform and beat myself up so I'm forgiven. Or I can rest in the work of Jesus and in his forgiveness and, uh, and, and come under the cover uh, of his forgiveness. So the word atonement is this whole picture of a substitute taking your punishment and covering your sin uh, so that you would know you're forgiven and uh, that you can have access to the Father. Uh, I'll give a quick little illustration and, uh, and then you can fire any questions you want to. Um, this is a true story. A friend of mine pointed out a pastor named Michael Gordon. Uh, it was the last uh, day of July in 1941 at a camp in Auschwitz. And uh, it was announced that a prisoner had escaped. And as punishment, uh, as a reprisal, uh, a German commandant decided an appropriate punishment were, was that 10 uh, prisoners would be chosen to die a slow, painful death uh, of starvation inside a concrete bunker, which was basically like being buried alive. Uh, the Germans lined up all the prisoners and uh, walked around the camp randomly selecting 10 prisoners to die. And at one point, the commandant pointed to one man named Francis, and he's Polish and I cannot pronounce his name, uh, Gajanek. <laughs> My wife's Russian and I have no luck with this. Um, anyway, Francis uh, cried out in despair, but I have a wife and kids. And uh, at the same moment, as weary uh, worn down older man with uh, sunken eyes and glasses stepped forward and took off his hat and uh, the commandant saw it and yelled at him what do you want pig and uh, the little old worn out man said I'm a catholic priest and I want to die for that man I'm old he has a wife and kids I have no one and his name was Maximilian Kolb uh, the commandant accepted the arrangement the priest and nine other prisoners were sent to the bunker and after about a week, only four of them remained, at which point uh, on August 14th, the Germans uh, decided just to get over, get it over, and Kolb uh, was executed by lethal injection at the age of 47. Uh, if you come 40 years forward uh, to 1982, um, all of you are too young, but I could have been there. In uh, 1982, in, in St. Peter's Square in Rome, there were 150,000 people gathered uh, to listen to the Pope. And at one point, he was describing Maximilian Kolb's death in this way. This was a victory won over all the systems of contempt and hate in mankind. This was a victory like that won by our Lord Jesus Christ. And listening in the crowd that day uh, of 150,000 was Francis, whose last name I can't pronounce, uh, the guy for whom he died along with his whole family and all his children's children. Uh, this is a picture, friends, of a sacrifice of one's life for another uh, out of love and, uh, and how it saves people. And that's what we have in, in the Lord Jesus, uh, a life given for us um, out of love. We don't deserve it. And he takes our place and uh, it, it gives us life. It's the way to life. All right, like last week, I am free to take your questions. Um, 
want to make sure we have adequate time. Yeah, we did. So fire away. And uh, unlike last week, if uh, other staff or anybody else, if you feel like you have something to contribute to the question, please chime in. Yep. Uh huh. Do you think people in the Old Testament who gave sacrifices had a clear understanding that this was temporary until until the Messiah came? That's a good question. Um, I'm going to suspect that some people did. Uh, Not all of them. Uh, I, I think they had a measure of faith in Yahweh. You know, the God of the Old Testament. They trusted in God. And they trusted in His mercy. And this was the provision given to them. And so they did what they were asked. And that was sufficient for them to know God and to be saved. I suspect some of them, maybe some other more, I'm, I'm just imagining. This is all speculation. I'm, imag- I'm imagining some of the more thoughtful, philosophical, artsy types maybe sat around and said, like, I don't know about this. Like, like I get it. Life for life. Sin costs. Something has to be paid. Um, but I wonder if this is really quite fair. I suspect a lot of people just considered it a mercy that God gave them a substitute of some sort, and they just did what they did what they did without thinking about it much. Well, doesn't a lot of the Old Testament point toward the Messiah? At what point does that start? I would say it starts pointing to the Messiah by chapter three. Um, but what's really interesting about the Messiah? is that uh, imagine, if you will, two parallel, well, not parallel, imagine two points on a graph, okay? And in the Old Testament, you have uh, the idea of a coming king, Messiah, okay? And that starts in chapter 3, verse 20, uh, verse 15, and, uh, and the, the promise of that runs straight through the Old Testament. And then you have the provision of a sacrificial system, starting in like Exodus, Leviticus. And then you have a promise of a suffering servant, uh, in Isaiah, and you have the idea that there will be a, a, a priest that gives his life, or someone that gives his life, Psalm 22 and 72 and 110. Um, but in most people in the Old Testament's minds, those were different things. And what you find is if you, if you take those two points and you trace them, the trajectory throughout biblical history into the New Testament, most people didn't expect these things to converge. And, and when Jesus comes up, and you can read this, this, is, this helps you explain Mark 8. Go read Mark 8. Peter says, who do people say I am? You're the Messiah. Great. And then Jesus began to tell them what? How he must go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter takes them aside and says, absolutely not, no way. The Messiah is not supposed to die for sins. So they were expecting a king to rule, not a king to die. They didn't understand that these two stories met in a person. And that the Messiah was not only the promised king, but the promised savior that would save from sin as well. So there you go. Uh, that serves again as fair warning that if you ask a question, I will almost certainly over answer it. <laughs> no, no, perfect. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Did the atonement work because he lived a perfect human life, or because he was God and man, or both? That's a great question. You know the uh, the. The, the short answer is humanity. Huh? <laughs> well, the short, I'll give you the short one and then I'll shorten it up long anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the short answer is we're all supposed to live a perfect life, but human nature being what it is, we can't. Adam ruined that for us. Uh, so the only human that could live a perfect life was a human that wasn't fully human. Does that make sense? 
Um, we needed a, a human to offer a sacrifice. But only one born of the Holy Spirit, perfectly sanctified from birth, was capable of doing that. And, uh, and that is why, you know, in God's great loving plan, um, you know, something that's really crazy to the ancient world and people today, God decided to take flesh. Uh, in order that we might have someone that lived a perfect life, as the New Testament will describe in other places, fulfill all righteousness. Uh, and at the same time, serve as a sacrifice that was sufficient to pay all our costs. So that, that's the answer to, was it necessary that Christ die for us to be forgiven? And the, and the answer is, yes, it was necessary that he die, because that's the cost of life. Someone has to die for us to live. And it's also necessary that Christ die, because no one else was good enough. So, yeah. Follow-up. Yep. Um, you said we had to have a human. Is that because it was Adam as a human that screwed up in the first place? Yeah, I think it's a good, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. It's a good philosophical question. Um, yeah, I, I, I think here uh, there's a sense in which what we deserve you know, this this is the this is like Genesis two the very beginning. You don't listen, you die. You know, uh, and it was pretty clear from the beginning for us that if if we rebel and choose a way of autonomy, that um, God has the right to give us what we deserve, and uh, that we deserve death. And uh, like I, I think it's our own, it's my human nature, and I believe this to say like that's a little heavy handed. Um, but the fact that if the atonement's true, and I believe it is, um, that means God takes this very seriously. Like even if we don't, even if we consider it heavy-handed, like my sin doesn't really deserve death, God thinks so because He became flesh in order to die for us. Um, yeah. So you know, as as Hebrews makes the point, and He makes the point thoroughly. Uh, the sacrificial system pointed forward to the ultimate uh, Savior, and uh, as he says in chapter 9, it was sort of sufficient for the cleansing of our flesh, but to really change the relationship we had with God, to take care of sin once for all, to cleanse our hearts, we had to have a perfect sacrifice. Um, and that's what we have in Jesus. Yes, ma'am? Um, it's like a tad off target. Okay. How aware was Jesus that he was the Christ and he had to be the atonement? That is a debatable subject. Um, well, it's, it's not debatable after a certain point. It's pretty clear, like starting in Mark nine, Mark eight, like I mentioned, that he uh, understood his mission. You read through Luke, and you find uh, this really interesting word "must" all the time in. So in Mark, it's immediately. Everything happens really quickly. Uh, in Luke, everything's necessary. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem because he must go. And there was a sense in which Jesus knew he had a mission to accomplish in Jerusalem. And uh, that's really clear in his ministry. The question is, at what point in his life did he become aware of that? And uh, the texts don't really tell us. Uh, some theologians would say he wasn't really clear at all, even much of the time. And the New Testament was uh, murkier on this than we think. I think Jesus was very aware of his mission uh, during his ministry and probably was aware of his sonship with the Father much earlier. But I don't know if we know when it became clear to him when, uh, when he would have to do what he had to do.
So you look at Gethsemane, and it's really clear that God and man put together. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. Like He was willing to do so as the Father's will, and he did it out of love. And Hebrews can even describe it as for the joy set before him. Like at the same time, didn't want to die that way. Didn't want to be abandoned by his father. Yep. Going off that, couldn't it, couldn't have Jesus known he was the Son of God all the way um, whenever he was in the temple, and he says, "I'm in my Father's house." Yeah, yeah. So I am not debating that he doesn't know he's the Father's son. I, I just I don't know at what point it became clear to him what his mission was. I think if you read through the accounts, it's really clear that Jesus has a really strong relationship of dependence with his father um, from early on. But we don't we don't have much about his childhood. Almost all the gospels are like, so we waited for him, and he was born, and uh, and then he lived for a while and like started his ministry. So there's a, there's a we don't know because they don't tell us. You know, um, the, the the gospels are there to tell us that he was born of the Virgin Mary. And uh, that he was divine, and that he had a mission, a mission of the kingdom, and that he gave his life, and he rose from the dead. And uh, so there's a lot about his life before that that we don't know. I'm going to assume he knew that he was the father's son. Um, but there's something different that starts at his baptism. There's something different about his mission after that. Like God is at work in him in a different way, I think. Uh, that doesn't mean he wasn't God's son. He certainly was. But uh, that Spirit's anointing and driving him into the wilderness, those mean something. I don't know exactly know what, but yeah. I have a question. Uh-huh. Um, it's more of like discussion. Anyway, it's hard to wrap my mind around the fact that like once and for all. So he knew not only like all the sins before he died, but he knows all the sins after that. Like there was still war, there was still people like he knew all of that. Yep. And like people could ask, like, like, why is there still war? Why, why does that still happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a great discussion question for a small group. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, how do I answer that? I feel like there's three questions in there. Uh, no, it's, I mean, it's a good question. Um, well, I will start with the war part. <laughs> I'll start with the war part. Um, and why aren't things better part? Um, Jesus made it clear in his earthly kingdom that, uh, in, his, in his earthly kingdom, in his, in his preaching, when he was in his ministry, uh, and he did this with some of his parables, I'm going to do the work of ministry, I'm going to proclaim the gospel, there will be fruit, there will be wheat, and there will be weeds. Anybody remember this story? And... Uh, and uh, the, the, the person in charge of the field comes and says, Hey, someone sowed weeds in your field. Should we go tear them out? And he's like, No, let them grow. We'll take care of it at the end. In other words, we don't really have, I think, a promise of a perfect world even after Jesus. Um, you know, I think we have the reason to be optimistic that God's kingdom will grow and things may get better. Um, this is a subject of something called eschatology and how we understand the end times. Uh, some people are very pessimistic, like, Jesus come now and rescue us from this hellhole and burn it all. Um, that's sort of a view. It's actually a very popular view. Um, and, uh, and there are some others that are a lot more optimistic. Um, and actually, I'm, believe it or not, I'm actually one of the more optimistic ones. Surprise you all. Um, um, yeah. Um, 
But regarding, uh, and I'll answer this, and I think y'all should go chat. Um, regarding the sufficiency, that's really the issue, the, the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. Um, you know, it's hard to wrap your heads around the fact that uh, his sins are sufficient not only for your past sins, but for your future and present sins. Um, but as a divine, omnipotent being, God holds all time in his hands. And uh, it wasn't a matter of time as, as much as it was a matter of perfection. Uh, time wasn't an issue. It was more of a matter of, is there a perfect sacrifice? Um, so we sort of struggle with that, but I don't think God does. Um, we struggle with that. Can like God forgive my future sins? Well, they're all future when Christ died. Uh, and in God's eyes, they're all before Him as the Father of time. That's a... Uh, Pretty strong philosophical question. All right, we shall cease Q and A. Thank you for.